fellow entity, you've downloaded episode 69 of the Ice Coffee podcast. This file contains interviews recorded with Inari Club members at the 2018 Australian Antarctic Festival. I say um when I'm speaking extemporaneously. Not so much when I'm lecturing, but when I'm communicating on equipment and trying to frame the next question while paying attention to the answer someone's giving me, I forget that I'm good at saying things using the England words. Something for me to work on, but not so concerning that I bothered editing the ums out of the dialogues. The first interview this episode features Barry Becker, a Bureau of Meteorology Antarctican, recounting the changes time wrought on his role, shifting from manual to automated systems, cutting down the original 12-hour shifts. It's my understanding that cloud cover and type recording is hard to automate, so I'm expecting meteorologists to maintain an on-site role well into the future. I'm speaking to Barry Becker at the Antarctic Festival in Hobart 2018. What's your connection with Antarctica, Barry? Uh, well, I've been, uh, been south uh, four times now. The most recent was last year. Spent a winter at Davis. Pretty awesome. So, how far back does your your association go? Uh, look, I've always uh, been interested ever since I joined the Bureau of Meteorology uh, in '82. But uh, uh, in those days, uh, I had a young family and wasn't able to do it. Uh, only later on in life, and all my kids were uh, mostly grown up that I had the opportunity to, to go down uh, and so I went first went down when I was uh, 50 so yeah and now I've been down uh, three times on top of that uh, again and you've spent winters in yeah, the south? Two, two winters uh, I spent a winter at Macquarie Island and one at Davis last year and Denise was talking me through Met ops in her early trips. What what's different about the way you carry out meteorological observations now? Oh goodness, yeah, it's uh, it's changed a lot over the years. I mean, uh, yeah, when we started in 1982, it was a lot of manual manual stuff. Uh, uh, an observer in those days uh, would have to plot charts, you know, the observations that they took and got over the uh, Telex machines um, and uh, we'd plot them on big charts and maps of Australia and the, even the southeast or the the uh, part of the world from uh, as far north as 50 north to 50 south uh, in, in Darwin they do a chart that big and an observer would have all the telexes come in and uh, he'd be plotting all the observations on that chart and that chart actually took about a 12 hour shift to complete. So you were drawing these barometric pressure charts oh, from yeah, they're, points? There were actually observations that we uh, drew on a point. Uh, it would have uh, temperature, humidity, visibility, clouds, different cloud heights uh, from a high, middle, low. Uh, how high they were, and uh, pressure, and pressure tendency, uh, weather that's around at the time. You, we could uh, plot a uh, hundred different weather codes. Uh, so all that information on a little plot, um, we had to get it under a five cent piece. 
and uh, yeah, so um, when I did the training, uh, we had to uh, plot one of these charts uh, and we had to do 110 observations in an hour plotting. And you said that that would extend into a 12-hour shift? Yeah. What, what length of time is that information collated in now? Oh goodness, it's, uh, it's almost instant. Yeah, I mean, there's no manual plotting. Everything's done automatically. All the information goes into Melbourne Central Computer um, from all the stations around the world, and uh, and including uh, satellite data. You know, which is uh, satellites have been proved so much in my life in the bureau, uh, and also uh, upper air data from balloon flights all over the world. Uh, yeah, ship, ship ops, aircraft ops, yeah, everything goes into this computer and then that's all crunched into the computer and they, they uh, produce the, the uh, meteorological models, the forecast models from that. When you first went south, the dogs had already finished? Oh, yes, yes. I, uh, my, I first went south in 2005. I went south as a uh, forecaster uh, over summer forecast for the uh, aviation, shipping, and all the station forecasts. And I've been asking everyone this: what's what's the single most inspiring moment that you've experienced, and the single most harrowing moment you've experienced at these high latitudes? Uh, most inspiring. There's been a a couple. Uh, the year on Macquarie Island was inspiring, the whole year. Because you get to see, you know, over the year you get to see the life cycle of the island, you know, the, the, the wildlife, it's their breeding patterns, you know, they're all breeding at different times of the year. They're, they're young. It seems as though, you know, you finish watching the seals give birth and then the, the penguins are hatching and then uh, something else is happening. It's, it's just constant. The whole year, and then uh, the other time was uh, I was at a, a field hut at uh, off Casey called Robinson's Ridge, Robos, and um, I went for a walk down into the bay, Penny Bay, and um, and it was dead still, no wind, nothing, and it was the um, uh, only place I've ever been to where you could sit somewhere and there was it was so quiet it was definite deafening silence it was quite, yeah, quite a quite an emotional moment and another time was uh, when uh, last year when I went uh, on a trip uh, up to Wilkins Cairn uh, you know Wilkins was the uh, famous Australian aviator and uh, explorer and uh, he had been to this part of Antarctica in 19, I think it was 1928 or somewhere around there and uh, there's, a, there's a box, a tin box up in this can or you know hidden under a shelf and uh, inside it is a wooden box and you slide open the wooden box and it's got these two enormous enamel mugs and inside, you know, uh, wrapped, wrapped inside is, a, is an Australian flag, a red ensign flag. And uh, yeah, to see that and to see uh, where this person had stood all those years ago, 
very emotional. There's, there's an iconic photograph of him there cracking a beer open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, oh, it's, it is truly amazing. Yeah. He, to me, is inextricably linked to meteorological efforts in oh, Antarctica. He was yeah. so passionate about getting weather stations established. Yeah, basically, I think uh, he was uh, the forerunner of uh, establishing a meteorological observing network. Uh, around the world, and uh, yeah, we can, you know, basically, yeah, he's, you're right, he's, uh, he's the start of the uh, observing program, plus all the other things that he did, and then, um, yeah, <laughs> quite a phenomenal pilot and photographer, and yeah, he was a contemporary of Frank Hurley, and, um, and I still don't, don't know why he isn't as famous or, uh, you know, I've spoken to people about that, and in particular Jeff Maynard, who's written about Wilkins in Wings of Ice, and um, I keep getting his name wrong, it's the unseen Anzac, writing about his time at Ypres. Um, He thinks that Australians like to get their history out of the way quickly and efficiently, and we, we have pigeonholes in our mind, we need an Australian war hero, well that's Monash and we need an Australian explorer, that's Mawson. And people can sometimes be brushed aside in that rush to get back to the sport. But I think there's also that Mawson resented Wilkins' association with the death of his friend, um, Hugh Mackay, in the Stephenson expedition. And so Mackay was left behind on the ship, the Kaluk, while Wilkins went off with Stephenson on an alleged caribou hunt and just never returned. Right. And yeah, yeah. Mawson's take on that was that... Yeah, so you, you, you can do things in your life that are one thing and it just stains you for life, doesn't it? It, it can. And in, in, <clears throat> pardon me. in the case of Mawson, he, he didn't ever give Wilkins much credit no. and that, play, that played some role in... Wilkins turning his back on Australia. He yeah. he had he'd had enough of not getting funded by the government and being yeah. So he, he spent a lot of his time in America and um, other places in the world. Yeah. And, um, am I right to say that he was? Is he one of the only? He was knighted in two different countries. He? he was. Yeah, which is quite amazing. And he was the first uh, person to take a submarine under the Arctic ice shelf. Yeah, I mean, he was a he was a real go getter. I mean, he he did what he set out to do. Yeah, and his resilience was amazing. I I, I can't think of anyone that's his equivalent. No. Uh, historically or in the present day. I'm curious, um, this is my first encounter with the Nari Club members. Yes. Do you know much about the relationship between Douglas Mawson and Philip Law? No, I don't. Okay, so I won't ask you to speak to that then? Yeah. I'm I'm sort of piecing together that they weren't the best of friends. Yeah, well, that happened a lot in uh, Antarctic history, I think. Like uh, yeah. I was talking to someone uh, the other day, or I heard something about uh, you know how Mawson uh, uh, Amundsen was uh, 
you know, basically the go-getter and Scott was a bit of, bit upper lip and uh, did things by the book and uh, didn't really do it correctly. And then uh, along came uh, Mawson, who was uh, very efficient, and, uh, except, you know, in <laughs> Yeah, it's... History is a, uh, an amazing thing uh, when you talk about Antarctic explorers, and as you say, uh, some people get forgotten, I guess. Yeah. Well, I was very pleased to speak to the president of the Inari Club, Joe Johnson, the other day, and he's written a book about William Spears Bruce, who's yeah. certainly never received the attention that his, yeah. his efforts and achievements warranted. So I'm very excited to hear that that's in the, in the pipeline. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, having been at Davis last year and, and, and you see all the photos of the groups on the wall, uh, the wintering groups, you know, from the, and you go back to the, the first ones uh, in the 1940s or late 1940s and early 50s and, and you see these people, uh, how different it was for them, uh, you know, than it was for me just being down there in a comfortable room and uh, getting all the food you want and, you know, all the amenities and then, yeah, to see these guys that... You know, the guys who first went to uh, Macquarie Island uh, in 1948, I think it was, and they were actually were in, were in a tent. Yeah, I can't imagine I can't imagine that. My time at Scott Base, I had access to a better internet connection on base than I had at home. Oh, did you? And better coffee than I could make at home. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't tolerate anyone complaining about the, the niceties. No. That's there, there were people dying not far from where we were set up just a hundred years before so oh yeah yeah and uh, yeah and to me it's uh, uh, to be an expeditioner and to be part of all this is uh, is it's just as such a privilege that i've never taken for granted and i think it's just uh, i really you know and every time i uh I come back and I, I really like to uh, show because I take a lot of photographs and I really love to show people and talk to people and tell them just just so you know they maybe could get just a small smidgen of uh, what we can experience down there. It's it's yeah we're we're sort of the you know going down there we we become a custodian of this amazing experience that we've had. That's a fantastic word, custodian. Yeah. yeah. I think I'll I'll hang on to that and try and try and inspire it and try and engender it in other people. Yes. Yeah. It is a privilege. It is yeah. a, a unique experience that's not available to everyone. Oh no, and, and yeah, and things like this, uh, you sort of you, you can get a little bit of what it's like, you know, but then you. Yeah. Having been there, you, you know, you, you you have all these imaginations of what it's going to be like, but it never is what it's, what you imagine. It's it's better in most cases. You know, the first time I went down and saw the ice floating in the water, you know, just small bits of it. But I was so excited, you know. This is it, you know. We're, we're getting there, and you know, yeah. 
what what ship did you sail on on your first trip? Uh, the Aurora Stratus. That was the, the Aurora yeah, no, was already yeah. operating. I have never flown down. I've uh, I've always been on the Aurora Stratus. Uh, seven voyages on the Aurora, and I've done one voyage on the um, Astrolabe. Um, the Gastrolabe. Yeah, that was. <laughs> that's the only time I was seasick. I, th- I thought that was a reference to the cooking. No. Yeah. And uh, and I was fortunate enough to also in uh, the uh, 2007 eight summer, I was a forecaster at uh, Casey and I was uh, fortunate enough to be at Wilkins Runway for the first landing of the um, A319 up there, which was, yeah, that was a bit of a buzz too. Yeah. Barry, thank you so much for your time. Denise Allen went south first as a meteorological observer and then as a meteorological forecaster. Stays at Macquarie Island, Mawson, Davis and Casey made her the first woman to winter at all four Australian research stations operating over the past decades and with six winters and many other visits under her belt I think she might be the ice coffee guest with the most ice time to date. When I was a Met observer I started as a, a and then a forecaster um, I my first winter was Macquarie Island in 1985. Then I did back to back at Mawson after being at home for um, six weeks uh, for 1986, and um, that became the first woman for the Bureau of Meteorology to winter on the continent. The Antarctic Division had had women female expeditioners wintering, but the Bureau of Meteorology hadn't. Then I did Davis 1988 and then Casey 1992. At that stage I became the first woman to winter on all four Australian bases because Heard Island was not active at that time, so oh, they had summer trips. Uh, then I did uh, Mawson 2005 as a winterer and Davis 2007 as a winterer. So wintering and observing teams, so six winters. I think all. at this point you are the most experienced Antarctican I have spoken to, not for the not just for the series, but full stop. I think you have more time in Antarctica than anyone else I've ever met. Yeah. Was travelling to Antarctica a long-term ambition for you? Well, um, I've done a few round trips as well with the club and forecasting, but no, I what how I got to Antarctica was I had. I had studied at university for teaching and then I got into the uh, Met Bureau of Geography and Meteorology was my studies and I in my in, in my training in the in the Bureau of Meteorology they were showing us places we could be posted to because we are hired from Melbourne and they're saying you're not going to be staying in Melbourne you could be posted to Cobar, to Cocos Island, to Darwin, to all these places so don't expect to be staying in Melbourne and they put up pictures of Antarctica this is one of the postings that we could go and I just went wow look at that place those icebergs are bigger than houses I'm going to go there and everybody there was I was the only female on the course there was um, uh, about 12 of us so virtually everyone else and the instructors all turned to me and said you can't go there and I said, why not? They said, because we only send men to Antarctica and you're a woman. So I went, hmm, well, we might just see about that. 
So within um, 12 months, so that was 82, within, two, within 18 months of training, I was down in Antarctica. And, but in fact, first year of application after, after completing training, I didn't get selected. Then um, the next year, Met Bureau had a, a have a posting that's Willis Island. It's off Townsville, to, to almost due east of Cairns, out on the Outer Barrier Reef. It has four staff on it since about the 1920s. It's a cyclone warning station. Uh, it hadn't. It's about the size of a football oval. You know, 20 minutes to walk around it, and um, that they hadn't sent women there either. So um, they said we can't send women to an to Willis Island because they don't wear clothes. The clothes effectively nearly rot off you in six months, you know. And some of the guys would go a little bit proper, you know. So anyway, I got selected for Willis Island before I got, so I did six months at Willis Island and they said, well, she's, she's done Willis Island, she's good for Antarctic. So I went to look at Antarctic for 1985 at Macquarie Island. We were six, six Bureau meteorology staff in, that, in those days on Macquarie Island and um, yeah so so I went there and then within 10 years I'd done before. So that's how, that's what inspired me was the fact that I grew up on a farm there was no demarcation of girls and boys jobs it was totally alien to me to think that I could not do something because I was a woman. I had, if the job needed doing you had to do it so, so that's that's how it happened. Yeah, but I was very aware at the time. I do, I, I do remember a half-hour lecture before I went to Willis Island, even from the Bureau of Meteorology, from the executive. Now we've never sent women to Willis Island. The future of women going remote with the Bureau of Meteorology is on your head. You're only out there for for six months, and we don't want. Then there's four of you, and we don't want four and a half coming back. And so, you know, you feel this big spotlight on you of the future of women following you is, is on your head. And then for Antarctic in those days, there, there definitely was atmosphere, you know, like of if you get involved with a woman, as a woman in a relationship in Antarctica, you're going to be shipped home, which previous women had been as unsuitable to winter. And the men are going to be tapped on the back and said, well done. And that was the atmosphere at the time. Uh, and, and it's documented one of the previous expeditioners, female expeditioners, had, had gone to the ombudsman after being sent home for openly being involved in a relationship. So my philosophy was, I'm in a working environment. You know, this is a false environment. There's my address when we get home call me up, you know. So that's how that's that's how it went. The, that first experience led to working led to others. There's no doubt that I, I also rode away. Like the there had been women before me who would have it could have easily been the first, they put in applications but were denied. And if I when at the time I came that wave was just breaking for women getting into the getting selected for the Antarctic, getting selected for remote positions. And and I rode that wave, you know. Like if I hadn't, I could easily have not been selected for the next year if I hadn't followed their spotlight and 
procedures the future women is on your head you know lecture half hour lectures but um but yeah I rode that way and I happen to have good crews you know like for Mawson for me people still say now what was your best Antarctic experience well Mawson 86 we had the Huskies and I ran 100 k's along the coast with a Husky trip with Dave McCormack who is one of the guys here and he he had been to Mawson five times, and we had two dog teams, four of us, 100 k's out again in the environment along the coast and back again. And that feeling now is still, you know, it's a corner of my heart to have have that that man against first human against environment running with the huskies, with the sled, you know, everything's going smoothly, the dogs puffing and otherwise silence, you know. And and there were times, days where we had blizzards, where we were blizzed in, in the Ulf's Island, east of Mawson, for um, 72 hours, where we couldn't really get out, you know. You have to lift up the flap at the bottom of the tent to have a pee, you know, and because uh, the tents weren't sealed at that time, so we couldn't really get out to... to um, 72 hours. Dave Dave went out to check on the dogs that they weren't getting covered by snow and I took that opportunity to have a pee. <laughs> you know? So um, that to me, the running with the Huskies is a, is a highlight of, of all my touches. Some people say well your first year must have been a good year too, which it was um, because you wouldn't have gone back and that's very true. You know, if, you, if I had if you have a very difficult year, then you would think twice about putting yourself in that environment again. But um, yeah, they, every year is different for the people and the dynamics, but the Antarctic environment itself is always beautiful. And I still say to people, put it on your bucket list. Even off on a tourist ship, anywhere out of South America, or just put it on your bucket list to go to Antarctica. Because even when you look back at your photos now, the environment, the penguins, Macquarie Island, you can get the same photos that Frank Hurley got. It's only the buildings, the clothing, the people that are different. But if you're taking a shot of the penguins, the rookeries, the seals, the wildlife, it's very much the same as 100 years ago. Sure, with climate change, the at Davis, like I went to Davis in... 1988 and then I wintered again in 2007 and we, there were places that I went in 1988 that were, that filled up was at the edge of the ice as it came off the plateau, uh, like Plateau and in 2007 the ice edge was about 200 metres back from where the hut was, the, hut had, the hut's position hadn't changed but the ice position, the plateau position had changed with the, with, with the climate change. So, um, yeah, there's those type of changes. Yeah, it's a great experience. You've outlined the most inspiring experience you had working with the dogs on that, that foray. What's the most harrowing thing that happened to you in your time in Antarctica? Um, people dynamics, I think, uh, not being managed well. No, uh, and a lot of that comes from the leadership, the, 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 the station leader, 
and the chef, two very important people on the station. And how they manage the station filters down. Now, I, I was through a, a, quite a, a change in time in communications as well because when my early winters, once the ship left, the comms between head office and, and the station, we, they ran the station as an insular unit, you know. Um, there was very little comms be, between coming and going. Um, so it, it, it was solitary. But then later on, with comms becoming very easy, a lot of the uh, difficulties from outside came on, like, like I can recall when the telephone first came in, previously people at home, families, not me personally, but families, you know, if there was an issue at home, they would work it out, resolve it, and the person on the station would find out after the event and the result had happened. But once the telephone came in, that information came instantly and those people on the station often found it very... Um, difficult by, and powerless to resolve a situation that they felt they should be helping out with but they couldn't do it so the, you know the whole comms thing has changed a lot I mean when I first went uh, we had whizzes you know 500 word whiz, words of, of telex coded information for a year um, that was your 500 words where my last trips, it's email, webcams, chatting. You know, in fact, I was more connected with my nephews and nieces at home on web and chatting, Skype type chatting, you know, Microsoft chatting, than I am in, when I'm at home in Australia because I was on my computer at a time with the time changes at the time they were on their computer and I, I had this instant connection. So, but, um, so, so I think people dynamics is, is some of the most can create some of the most harrowing situations. Uh, blizzards, I never, I was never really worried about blizzards. I never really, oh yeah, there was a few times in the blizzard we were out where we were nervous about getting back into safety, um, but we did. So, but around station, I, I wasn't. We in the early days we. As, as MET people, we release balloons and do our work by the clock. So quite often we're up and around station on a GMT Zulu time, sort of time frame. Everyone else is sleeping and you're up alone doing the work and might be working between, you know, get walking between buildings at 80 knots, 70 knots of wind along the blizz line. And, um, and, Nowadays, they 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 often close it. I mean, we would we we would wake up if I was going to work at four o'clock in the morning and and it was you know above fifty knots. I would call the other met person's room once we had the internal phones and say I'm leaving the building, and then call them again and say we're back safe in, into the building. But I never really I never really felt concerned about blizzards, but I think part of that was one of my first arrivals at Mawson. When I first arrived at Mawson, because uh, I, I was a quick changeover, what happened was I came home from Macquarie Island, I booked a trip for Europe with, to Europe with some friends, I went into the Weather Bureau and I asked them um, I, that I wanted to put in an application for the following winter. Um, 
before I travelled overseas because I'd be away when the application, you know, advertising came out. And they said to me, Denise, we've had one of the guys has had to come back on the ship and we've got one more ship going south for this season. Would you like to sail to Mawson in a week? So I went, yep, big rush, packed my bags, you know. Ended up, there was a lot of discussions whether I was going to go to Mawson and be the only female for what was what was to be an all-male wintering team. And there was, um, there was discussion whether they were going to put me into Davis and take a Met person that had already been at Davis across to Mawson and keep Mawson all-male. And then there was a female doctor at, at, at Davis and there'd be two women together, um, that type of thing. So... Um, Anyway, it turned out that I, that I ended up getting in, into Mawson. And my first, we got in late, it was March, it was a blizzard blowing up when they arrived. I flew in from a distance, uh, helicopters. I never got, I only got in what was in my cabin. I wore men's jocks and trousers out of the food store for a lot of the year because um, a lot of my gear came back to Hobart and sat in the store because the, this, the blizzard blew up. The two helicopters flew in with whatever we had in our cabin and they dropped me off and they were gone. And that was that happened to be a Saturday night. And I arrived and the station leader took me up to my room, took me up, took me up to my room, showed me the room, and we were in new accommodation building for sleeping medical quarters, but a really the old building for the mess and the and the cooking. And uh, then took me down for this Saturday night dinner and I thought Oh, they put on a really good dinner for my arrival, you know, I thought it was like a welcoming committee. Only later did I find out that it was uh, it was normal Saturday night dinners, you know. And in this Saturday night dinner, in this mess, got introduced around, and the general pervasive attitude I, fe- I felt I received was, we were looking for an all-male winter. We don't really, we don't really want a woman here. We might have to look after her, you know, might be causing trouble, blah, blah, blah. So at the end of this evening, and while the dinner was happening, I was aware that outside that things were happening, but I wasn't quite sure, you know, like the weather was getting worse, but I, I was aware that there was noise happening outside. Anyway, at the end of this dinner, I thought, okay, time to go back up to the accommodation building to where my sleeping building is it's outside the, the mess area and up up the blister, up the hill. Anyway, as I opened the door to go outside, there, there was a full-on blizzard happening. I put my hand out in front of my face and I couldn't see it. The blizzard is absolutely blowing, absolutely so thick. So I shut it up and stood in the cold porch and thought, well, what am I going to do? Because if I go back into the kitchen, into the mess area and say, excuse me, guys, can, is it's pretty windy outside. Can you someone walk me home? I'm absolutely proving what they've just been telling me in this dinner. First night here. So I thought, ah, blizz lines. The previous people have told me about blizz lines. There's got to be a blizz line somewhere. So I pulled it, shut everything, you know, pulled everything down secure, put my goggles on, make sure my gloves are all secure, everything down open. And I got out the door and it was hard to shut the door because I was only about 54 kilos then, quite, quite light. And uh, shut the door and I felt my way along the edge of the build, along the building. And then I felt my way down, my fingers down the edge of the building. And I went, 
police line. I'm going to, this should go to where I need to go. And I followed that police line up to where I saw the, uh, the sleeping medical building, what we called the Red Shed, and I went in. And now nobody knew that story till about September. I wasn't going to tell them. But I do think if I'd walked back in and said, hey, guys, can you walk me home? I think the whole year might have, it, it might have developed quite differently. But, you know, I, I ended up to be quite a respected member of this community. So, so that was pretty harrowing. My first night at Mawson with a full-on mess. And the footage now, I look back at the station leader um, and uh, at the station video and the footage of a helicopter landing is pretty hairy footage. It's on our, our year, year video because they were landing it. They, they, didn't, they, they didn't switch down or they just touched down enough, kept it all motoring. The, the, the helicopter was shaking quite a bit, you know, moving as they put down. Put, pushed everything out, including me, <laughs> and then took off. And, and I do understand it was quite a, quite a um, difficult flight back to the ship. And then the iceberg was on the iceberg, and uh, the, the iceberg, the, that captain had lost the ship in bad conditions previously in Antarctica, and he was pretty keen to get out of there. So, so we went, the ship left him. They were gone. That was, and, and one of the guys, in fact, they still say, our major resupply, look at that over there, that 54 kilo bag of bones is our major resupply. <laughs> so, but they were a good crew. The Morrison 86 is a very, very good crew. Denise, thank you so much for your time. That's been wonderful. Okay. Trevor Luff went south as a diesel without whom everyone would die horribly as the base cold soaked. Diesos are also responsible for keeping the vehicles going, so in the post-husky age there's not much happens out in the field without their support. Hug a diesel today. Traversers, tractors and Pilatus porters. These are a few of my favourite things. Sitting down now with Trevor Luff at the Antarctic Festival 2018 in Hobart. Trevor, what was it that first got you involved in Antarctica? Oh. Well, that's a question nobody's ever asked me before. But I suppose, really, I've always wanted to go south from when I was about eight years of age. Uh, and then as I uh, got halfway through a trade, as a, in, in, well into my trade as a mechanic, I just started reading about Scott and Shackleton and uh, the rest is history. By 1969 I was uh, on the way to the Antarctic. But the, the thing that the clincher was, I saw an ad in the Courier Mail in, uh, in January of, of 1969. It had that big ad with, a, with, a, um, with an explorer holding a husky. And it had on top of the ad, wanted men in the Antarctic. And uh, I read down the job job specifications, diesel mechanic. That's it, I'm a diesel mechanic. Within, by September of that year, I was in, in, um, in Melbourne and in training. In December, I was sailing. So it happened that quickly. What did training involve? Uh, three months of training uh, at, the, at the division was in Melbourne in that era, the uh, Australian Antarctic Division. And we had to do, uh, of course, 
a lot of the uh, diesel generators uh, bring, get up to speed on generator, generation of electricity because we have to run our own powerhouses. Uh, tractors, which I was brought up with, uh, all the diesel tractors, Caterpillar tractors, and and uh, anything that had an engine in it or, or anything that had machinery, a diesel mechanic had to attend or go with that expedition if they're going into the field. So, so it was just a wide range of skills that one has to have. The, uh, the mix master in the kitchen broke a gear, stripped a little plastic gear while I was able to machine run up on a lathe made a handmade indexing machine and just cut this gear and so the, the mix master was back in, in action with a, with a steel gear in it rather than a little nylon one. <laughs> you can't, that's, just, that's the sort of thing you have to do when you go south. And what was your first deployment? Which, which base were you? Uh, Mawson. I've only, been, I've only went it once and that was at Mawson. I left, it, uh, left, in, left Melbourne in December of, six, of, of uh, 69 and uh, by the end of December I was on the, lifted off a nice warm ship in the Miller Dam and lifted onto the Amory Ice Shelf and that's where I spent the next seven weeks with, with a four member uh, glaciological traverse and so from a warm ship to an ice shelf which is probably the uh, one of the largest ice shelves in the world 90 miles wide at the front, it's grounded 90 miles in, so there's 90 by 90 miles of it floating. And uh, it's fed by a basin uh, the size of Western Australia. All the snow drains down through the Omri Ice Shelf from a field as big as Western Australia. Uh, that's, you can't get your, uh, your mind around the, the, the immensity of the Antarctic. <laughs> what was the driving force of the... the Traverse, what were the machines? Uh, on, on that traverse, it was a small four man party using snow cruisers, just small one man uh, uh, machines uh, with an outboard marine OMC uh, engine, two stroke engine. And behind it, it had uh, we had dog sleds to carry all our gear two dog sleds per machine, there were three, three machines, a four man party. But behind my uh, snow cruiser, I had two dog sleds, and in one of them, there was an, uh, the electronics uh, engineer or the rural physicist for the year. He uh, he did a we did soundings all the way up the centre of the Amory Ice Shelf, and those soundings measured the depth uh, to the base of the of the shelf, and then then down to the down to ground level. We discovered that 90 miles in was where it was actually grounded. So, so that was we never missed a never missed a reading in uh, in the entire time in the five weeks we were on that traverse. Never missed a, a radar reading. But, but every night in the uh, in the little two man tent, there was all you could smell was solder and and uh, and repairs going on with the radar equipment, the electronics equipment. <laughs> Mind you, I was doing the cooking, and uh, and Alan Foster, the late Alan Foster, he was the uh, electronics engineer. And he did not miss one reading for the entire traverse. And today, those readings are still those readings are still uh, worked on and used because there's very little data going back 50 years. Right. Going beyond that. So those 50 years, 50 years ago, that the data we put in then or collected then is still used today. I just feel like adding a note to anyone listening that's out in the field with modern equipment 
just harden up. (laughs) 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 Fix your gear, stop whinging, get the job done. That's right. If you stop, you've got nobody else to... uh to call on if you uh, if you get caught, it can be days before anybody can get to you. Uh, it's just you have to be totally self-sufficient. The ninety miles you mentioned was that the turnaround point? Was that the goal? No, and no, then you kept... we, we kept going until we got to the Lambert the mouth of the Lambert Glacier, which feeds the Amory Ice Shelf. And uh, we did we we had to check the winter before in '68, uh, two winters before. 1968, there was a four-man party there who lived on that ice shelf for uh, 12 months. They, they, uh, it was run by, it was led by Max Corey uh, and Max and three others, and they they set up camp in the middle of the shelf and they drilled a hole through the shelf and down into uh, into bedrock. But during that uh, during that traverse, they they placed 88 steel metal poles all the way up the centre of the shelf and then in four places they went out to hard rock uh, on either side of the shelf. So Tellurometer 1, Tellurometer was the distance measuring device so they would measure the distance at each pole out to the rock on the right on the the west side and then do the same on the other and then go to Tellurometer 3, 2, 3 and 4 and so those anchor points are used, still used to this day as reference points and they've actually not long ago they went back and found some of those those poles and because they were positioned by theodolite actually positioned they now know how fast the shelf has been sliding away and it does slide I'm, I'm talking in miles here it does move out to sea at the rate of three quarters of a mile a year it's a fairly fast moving shelf that's a tremendous mm. volume of ice to be on the move massive <clears throat> massive well, it's fed by, as I said earlier, it's fed by an area the size of Western Australia. And of course, Antarctica is more than twice the size, nearly twice the size of Australia. And it's about a five kilometre block of ice. Three kilometres above water and two below. And so after the seven weeks on the traverse, you were on station for Air, most airlifted, of the time? Airlifted uh, by, by Pilatus Porter from, from the, off the ice shelf into Mawson. And uh, when I'm in Mawson, I only stayed in Mawson for about a week and then I was airlifted by helicopter to join a tractor train trip on the way to, to another base uh, in the Prince Charles Mountains on the way to Moor Pyramid. So airlifted by helicopter and, that's, and that was just the first of three tractor train trips that I did throughout the year. Mm. Through the dark as well? Through the dark. Well, one of them... Uh, one of the trips I did was 20, uh, 21 days from midwinter. I did a dog trip on the sea ice. And so I was there in the era of the dogs, although they were starting to fade out. We still had important stuff to do, and we went up to uh, Taylor Glacier Emperor Taylor Glacier, Penguin Rookery, 60 miles due west of Lawson, all on sea ice. And so you only get uh, four hours the most to travel in, in, in the dead of winter. So you're travelling, if you miss getting up, if you're sleeping, the day's gone, it's all over. One night we, we woke up, I woke up, it was broad daylight and, and I looked at the watch, it, it was only six in the morning. Put my head outside the tent and it was a, an, an aurora that was so intense you could read the fine print on the stamp. And dancing and the colours and the intensity, it was just a, just 
you couldn't, you'd be flat out catch, capturing it on, on film. It was just so intense and so much of it. And that's, and that's the beauty of travelling of a night time. The aurora is just a pier. You can spend four hours out in, in, a, in bitterly cold weather, not any sign of an aurora, then you go inside, turn your back, and it's ablaze with an aurora, rural activity. Do the dogs pay any attention to what's going on in the sky? No, they, uh, not to my knowledge, no, I really, I really can't answer that one. I, I, it never occurred to me that, that they would. Uh, no, I can't answer that one, I, I don't think so. All they're interested in is pulling those sleds and, uh, and food. <laughs> when you hitch the dogs up, if you haven't got out of that sled, it's gone out of sight, so you... When you hitch them up and pull out the uh, the stake from the lead dog, you have in stake pegged to the ground. And also to stop the fights because they love fighting the first mile on a dog on a dog trip. The first mile is always more fights and blues than you can imagine. You got seven to the team, and once they settle down, they'll just pull twice their own weight all day. They just love pulling. You think getting towards the end of the day, you think they're tired and had it. If they sight a penguin a hundred metres away. 100 yards or so away, they're gone unless you've got all of that sled. <laughs> you think they had it, but until they sighted a penguin, so it was always a battle to not let dogs and penguins get mixed up. And were you travelling with the dog teams in the winter because the machinery wasn't reliable at those? Uh, no, 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 we couldn't take any machinery. We didn't have suitable machinery to go down on sea ice, only the dogs. But it's part of a science program. We had to count the birds and their eggs. 21 days from midwinter. It's been, it's a, it's a program that's been going, going for quite a while. Within 21 days of midwinter. So uh, yes, that's just part of the science program, and going science program down there. It would have added to the mix. So we had to count 3,700 birds sitting on 92% of eggs, 92% of the males with an egg on their, on their belly, under their belly. Pardon me. I've been asking people, um, and you're welcome to think about this and come back to it, about their most inspiring moments and their most harrowing moments in Antarctica. On the Omri Ice Shelf, our, um, our, our illustrious leader, Max Corrie, just happened to mention that there were crevasses in this area. And I thought, well, I'd be safe if I follow the snow cruiser track and the sled track. I'm walking along and down I went and all of a sudden I just went straight down up to my armpits and this crevasse, this slot or crevasse was in line where I was walking. If I had it been the other way I wouldn't be here today because it was 500 metres plus down to the bottom and uh, we wouldn't have had any rope and you'd be dead anyway. So and that was pretty terrifying, very terrifying. My first experience with uh, crevasses and... and uh, and many, many more as the year progressed with tractors and crevasses and it's just crevasse country where we, where we travelled and the photographs I have of tractors, hauling tractors out of crevasses is just horrifying. But to get used to them after a while you'll jump, you'll see a, you see a crevasse that has a snow bridge and it may be uh, 15 metres, 20 metres wide. I jump onto the middle of it, walk across and then jump off the other side. It's the edges that are yeah. tricky. Yes, well, all edges are tricky. The bridge in the middle is usually pretty solid, but you get that blase. But now, horrors of all horrors. You, I wouldn't 
just can't imagine how we ever did that, but we did. We just got used to being around crevasses. And uh, just recently they, they lost a helicopter pilot on the Amory, uh, stepped out of a, out of a helicopter to, un, to unhog his sling. He was doing a fuel run from Davis and uh, he just fell out of sight, straight down a crevasse and unfortunately the other, the other pilot was in the other machine uh, couldn't see him so he had to go all the way back to, to Davis and bring help. And that ended up very sad in the end. It was a, it was a sad day. And so now there'll be more rewriting of rules. Remain clipped to, machine, to your machine when you step out of it. It's, it's, uh, it's the hazards of the Antarctic. And, uh, and it could happen to anyone. It just looks perfect ground to walk on. You just never know when there's a crevasse. It's the stuff of nightmares for me. Your your story. Yes. Um, I'm a marine ecologist. I want to stay on the sea. Stay keep, on keep the me, sea. Keep me at sea level. Keep me off the mountains. Um, and an inspiring moment. Perhaps perhaps the aurora was the aurora, the aurora activity was was just beyond belief on that one dog trip. I've only ever seen another one uh, as brilliant as that, and that was back in '98 when I went back down. And we had to do a, uh, a medevac out of Macquarie Island. We were returning from from Mawson, Casey Davis, doing a doing a depot run or doing a, a, a resupply run. And we'd got to Macquarie Island. We'd been in pounding seas, and we pulled off in the front of Macquarie Island. In front of us, there was just every bit of sea life and bird life was parked up there because of the weather. And it was just like walking into the biggest zoo in the world. It was so stunning. Well, later that night, uh, it was midnight, and there was a couple of us watching movie, a movie in the uh, in the rec room of the, in the in the dining room actually of the polar bird. When the bridge uh, sent a note down and said there's a roar activity on, so we raced for our cameras up to the bridge, and I had forgotten from 1970 to, to 98. 1998, I'd forgotten how intense the auroras were and there was just five or six of us up there on the bridge photographing this aurora that particular night and that was all those years later, nearly 30 years later. The aurora activity is just you never get tired of looking at it. And your involvement with an RE club? I'm on the I'm on the council, Queensland representative and it, uh, it's something that's never out of your blood. You always want to be near something to do with the Antarctic, doing something with the Antarctic. It's uh, always with you, whether you're doing talks at schools or the Lions Rotary Clubs. It's, it's, it's just a, a love that you get for a, a passion, I suppose you would call it. It's been my passion since 19, uh, 1969. But I suppose the most uh, the most joyful uh, news that I received were on, had been on the Amory Ice Shelf just three, nearly four weeks when uh, Morse code came through. It's a girl, Jennifer Lee. She's fifty. Uh, she's fifty in um, in uh, no, no, uh, uh, two thousand and twenty. <laughs>
Can you imagine that? <laughs> My son is 10 and I'm, last summer I started working on the ships sailing out of Ushuaia, lecturing on history. And he said to me, Dad, you're not allowed to lose his job because he wants to come with me. And just, yes, like, uh, like you said, it gets under your skin. That's <clears> it, <throat> yeah, well... Well, Jennifer Lee, she's uh, she's a world traveller these days. She's based in Sydney, and just a wonderful. She's our youngest daughter. We've got two others. Uh, our eldest, I was in America when she was born. Our next one, Scotty, I was in Sydney when he was born, and Jenny, I was in the Antarctic. She was 15 months old before I saw her, and I had this little girl to come home to. Three little kids to come home to, and I. And uh, yeah, it took me a long time before I travelled again. But, uh, 98 was when I did get back on the on the club berth, and that was a trip from hell. That was a shocking trip. In terms of the sea state, uh, the uh, well, we'd been caught in the sea ice. It was a five-week trip, and <coughs> five-week trip, and I got home. I got home uh, three months three months later. We were caught in the sea ice, we were this, we were that, huge, just, it was a shocking trip. I went down to the club berth and, yeah, anyway, that's the way it was. Uh, but there's so much to talk about. As a mechanic, as a diesel mechanic, you're in the thick of everything. Without, without diesel, no. Antarctic it doesn't happen. No. I was very lucky, well I was lucky or unlucky, uh, uh, during our year there was two other diesel diesels with me but one had a broken leg at one stage and the other one had a broken arm, so at, at another stage, so I did I did all the field trips, uh, most of my time was, was out of base, off base, but I still had time to, uh, to get in a dog trip and and take a few of the guys out that were doing it pretty hard in the in camp. Uh, I used to take uh, I, I took a couple of blokes out of camp because they were pretty well shattered and and probably depressed. I'd take them up to Rumdoodle, which is there was a base up there at Guam, up to Rumdoodle, and we just potter around the mountain, do a bit of screes, climb around the scree slopes, and had two snow cruises and. We did that, or I'd take them uh, out on a dog run somewhere. I did that with a few of the guys just to break, get them out of camp because that's where they—that was their life in camp. They, they could not get out on expeditions inland because of their trade and their. But but depression is one of the biggest things. One of the, well, it's not—it's not a big thing, but it is—it is a thing that happens. I stated in episode 45 that Amundsen's trek to the Pole wouldn't make a compelling film on account of the lack of drama he incorporated into his memoir, but I'm slated to eat my words in February 2019, when a Norwegian production, simply called Amundsen, is due for cinematic release. It looks like they cover a lot more than just the South Pole trek, with the airship Norge and the polar bear attack featuring in the trailer. I'll certainly go and see it. I don't think the Norwegians go in for hagiography 
or hagiography, so I'm looking forward to a what's and all portrayal. My contracts are in for the Austral summer, and I look forward to joining my ship in late October, so you can expect some variety in the soundscape soon. I really enjoyed the challenges posed by recording under different conditions in the variety of places the contract work took me to last summer, and now I have some ideas about how to maximise the audio opportunities the next trip might present. The main difference this time around being that I've got the notes ready to go, so I won't be drafting and editing while dealing with my weak guts on the Drake Passage. I'm also very excited at the prospect of finally seeing Dr. Paul Bruin in Stanley this summer. It's been 12 years since we last caught up in San Diego, and after travelling halfway around the world to see him last Austral summer, he wasn't home, having deployed to somewhere tropical for a spell. He assures me he'll be in Stanley when I pass through the Falklands this December, and I look forward to that catch-up immensely. I mentioned in an early episode that Paul had my back during my first season at Scott Base, and that we shared an office at Portobello for three years before that. There's a lot of music, laughter and scones in our past, and more lie in the future if I have any say in the state of the universe. Saying hi to Liz, Bonnie and Belle, a triumvirate of awesome from the Bellarine Peninsula. Take care and appreciate your coffee.